Blood in God's Tent. What an ominous sounding title. It honestly doesn't sound that good. But trust me, at the end of this, there is good news for us. Uh, blood in God's Tent is nothing but upside for us. So, uh, but we're going to study what it means and why we're talking about it now. But let me give you a little context. We noted last night in our presentation from Daniel chapter 7 that the same sequence of kingdoms that we'd seen in Daniel chapter 2 was repeated, except new information was given. Yes? Okay. Now, in Daniel 2, we saw Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then divided Rome, then Jesus comes. Daniel chapter 7, we saw Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, then we have the little horn of papal Rome, and then we have this judgment scene in heaven, and then Jesus comes again. So the two added pieces of information in Daniel chapter 7 were the little horn of the Antichrist power and the judgment scene of God in heaven before Jesus returns. Tonight we lay a foundation that will be developed over the course of the following two evenings. Okay, So much like Antichrist had part one and part two, tonight's presentation and the next two develop the idea of this judgment that we saw occur before Jesus comes in Daniel chapter 7. Okay? So we're still in that stream of prophetic history, but we're going to be looking at this judgment seen in heaven more closely, understanding it more fully, so that when we come to it in the stream of prophecy, we will understand it and not have questions. Does that make sense so far? So we're going to be looking at this concept of judgment, and tonight's presentation is entitled, Blood in God's tent. But before we study God's word, what do we need to do first? That's right. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us another day of life at all. And thank you for this particular time that we can come away from the rest of the uh, hustle and bustle of our daily life. And for a few moments, Lord, open your word, study together, and see your message for us. Lord, send your Holy Spirit now, not just in a big nebulous, vague way, but very specifically, Lord, teach us what we need to know and let our hearts be receptive to your truth, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible. Of course, our series is entitled Keys of Revelation, and Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. But as we mentioned in night number one, all the themes and all the keys of Revelation are actually built on things that come before the book of Revelation. So in understand number, book number 66, you need to be familiar with the 65 books that come before it. In Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be going. As we begin our study tonight, blood in God's tent. Genesis chapter 2, and that's page 2 in your pew Bible. Right there at the very beginning of Scripture, we find this account. This is before there's sin in the world, before there's disobedience of any kind. Hot off the presses, if you will, comes humanity. And notice what the Lord commands of the newly formed man. Let's start with chapter 2. I think there's an incorrect uh, verse in there. It is chapter 2, but we're going to go to verses 16 and 17, not 6 and 7. After in verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. We read in verse 16, 
And the Lord God commanded the man. Now, let me pause right here. If the Lord God commands something, does that mean it's a requirement or it's an option? It's a requirement. That's what a commandment is. It's telling you to do something. It's very clear. So it's not a suggestion. It's a commandment, right? And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. He had access to every tree in the garden except, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not, what? Eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. I mean, this is very clear language. You can eat of all the trees, but this one. And the day you decide to disobey and eat of that tree, you will surely, not just possibly, but you will absolutely, guaranteed, die. Is that clear so far? Very clear command. Okay, now let's continue on. Turn the page to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. The woman God gave to be with the man wandered off and has an interesting conversation with the serpent right there in the very forbidden tree. Now, being near the tree doesn't break God's command, but it does put you in danger, right? She's there, and of course Satan is there in the form of the serpent speaking to her. And notice what the serpent says in verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. What had God said? You shall surely die. And the serpent says, no, 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 no. You will not die. God says you will die. The serpent says you won't die. Now let me ask you a question. Which of the two ideas is more appealing, dying or not dying? <laughs> Obviously, to my natural sense, I, I, I prefer not dying to dying. Right? But God had said, but now she's hearing someone else say something different. So the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. And he explains that God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice his argument is not just that it's okay for you, but it is actually good for you to eat of it. Your eyes will be opened, kind of meaning that they're already closed right now, and you'll be like God you know? So it's appealing to her to eat this fruit. It's not just okay. You're not just allowed to, but it's actually beneficial for you. And we read tragically in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and, a tree uh, and pleasing to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now, what had the Lord God said? In the day you eat of it, you shall what? So what should have happened to them that very day? Should have died. Now, here's my question. Did they die that very day? Well, look at Genesis chapter 5. Let's confirm this, by the way. Genesis chapter 5 gives the genealogy of Adam which kind of is a clue right there that he didn't die that day because he lived long enough to have children. 
But how long did he actually live? Did he, did he die a week later, or a month later, or a year later? How long did the Lord allow him to continue to live? Genesis chapter 5, look at verse 5. So all the days that Adam lived were how long? 930 years. And he died. So did he eventually die? Yeah. But I mean, a long time later. But God had said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Was God wrong? Good. The answer to was God wrong is always no. All right. But in this particular instance, what occurred? He disobeyed. Adam clearly disobeyed. It said he ate the fruit. God said you will not eat the fruit or you'll die. He ate the fruit and he didn't die. Not till 930 years later. Why didn't he die that very day? Thus we've labeled this key. The day Adam should have died. What happened? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. I think we get a clue here. What's interesting about that day is that though Adam and Eve did not die, something did die that very day. And we see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of what? Skins and clothed them. Notice it didn't say tunics of fur, (laughs) like you could pull it off. But it was the actual what? Skins. You know, you don't donate your skins. You have to, and live through it, right? Something has to die. Thus, it's interesting in the book of Revelation, it refers to Jesus Christ as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus Christ die that day? No but something representing Jesus Christ died that day in the place of Adam and Eve, who should have died that day. And apparently this sacrificial system was instituted as a reminder that you should have died, but something else died in your place. Notice we see this in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, we'll just read the story very briefly. You're probably aware of it. Verse 1, Now Adam knew his, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of what? Sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. Was Cain's occupation bad? Is it wrong to be a farmer or a gardener? Of course not. One wasn't better than the other occupationally, but watch what they did with it. Now watch, watch. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Okay, so Cain brought fruits of the ground to be offered to the Lord. Nothing had to die for that. It's just fruits and vegetables and whatnot. Abel brings of his flock. The Lord distinguishes which one he approves of. He didn't just say, oh, you just bring me whatever you want. He was very clear about this. Watch the next verse. And I'm still still in verse 4, I'm sorry. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. 
And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord apparently from the very beginning established this concept of a sacrificial victim in the place of the one who should die. He institutes that in Genesis chapter 3. Apparently it was supposed to be perpetuated afterwards as Abel brought the flock and the Lord respected that offering, but when Cain brought fruits, grains, nuts, and veggies or whatever, the Lord did not respect that one. Clear. Now, as we've already talked about, this lamb in itself, lambs and sheep, do not have any value to save us. Do not think that we actually were saved by a physical lamb. The lamb is a representation of something else. Let's see this. Go to Genesis chapter 22. We're still in the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 22. We'll start with verse 1. This is a story of the faith of Abraham and how it was tested by God. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said to him, here I am. Then he said, take now your what? Son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. That's a test of faith for sure, is it not? What we read now, verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went on together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham and said to him, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the what? Lamb for a burnt offering. What does Isaac expect to be offered as an offering or a sacrifice to God? A lamb. It has been ever since God instituted it. It's a lamb. This is what we do. And he notices we have wood, we have the material to start the fire, we have the knife to kill the lamb, but where's the actual lamb? Look at verse 8. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went on together. Now in Abraham's understanding, who had the Lord already provided as an offering? Isaac, right? He says, don't worry about it now, son. The Lord has in mind who he's going to or the sacrifice animal today. We're just going to keep going on together. Abraham walks up that hill by faith, fully intending to execute the Lord's command. We skip down to verse 13. Oh, I'm sorry. Look at verse 9. We'll just keep reading. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! So he said, here I am. And notice in verse 12, he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. 
since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then, verse 13, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. The idea of the lamb dying in the place of the one who was supposed to die was reiterated to Abraham, poignantly, graphically. Now, the effect of this, of course, still just a symbol, just a representation, but it met its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Go to Isaiah chapter 53, page 710 in your pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 53, a passage we've read before, but see it through these eyes now. Verse 6. All we, this is Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him, this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all, or the sin, or the guilt of all of us was put onto Jesus Christ. Thus, when we go to the New Testament, to the book of John, to the Gospel of John, the same John that wrote the book of Revelation in his Gospel record, we read in John chapter 1 and verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ for the very first time, what comes out of his mouth? It says in verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, what? The Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. So, did John the Baptist understand that all of those lambs throughout the Old Testament history were pointing forward to the coming Messiah? Absolutely. Isaiah 53 made that clear that on him would be laid the iniquity of us all. This is Christianity 101, basic nuts and bolts. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Peter concurs. Go to 1 Peter. Keep going to the right in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Notice what the Apostle says here. Starting again with verse 18. Chapter 1, starting with verse 18. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with what kind of things? Corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. We were not bought back with stuff. Even nice stuff like silver or gold, or even animals like lambs and goats and bulls. They referred to someone much more valuable than any silver or gold, any possession, anything. He says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct by, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of whom? Christ, as of a what? Lamb without blemish and without spot. He was indeed, watch this now, verse 20, and he indeed was foreordained when? Before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Notice he says, this was the lamb from the foundation of the world who was going to take a sin 
off of us. So when Adam should have died that day, but he didn't, God slayed a lamb, but that lamb represented the eventual sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Does this make sense so far? Okay, good. So now we see that starting from the very moment that sin entered the world, God initiated this sacrificial system where a lamb takes the place of humanity's guilt. And of course, the lamb doesn't do the saving, but it's a representation of Jesus Christ who would die, and by his blood, we would have access to the throne of God. Now, let's go to the second page of our study guide. And we're going to dive into a little bit deeper. What we've done so far is basic Christianity 101. And now we're going to go just a hair deeper, Exodus chapter 25. Now, when these lambs were being sacrificed, at the very beginning, it was right there at the, at the door of the Garden of Eden. And apparently the family altar would be, resurrect, uh, would be erected by Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on down the lines. But when the Lord God called his people up out of Egypt to make them a nation, apparently this sacrificial system was to take on a more organized structure. It was not just the heads of every family would move in morning and evening kind of offering a worship service. Apparently, it was going to be a more structured thing for the whole congregation. Okay? Now, to give you a little context about Exodus chapter 25, well, it comes just a few chapters after Exodus 20, which that's kind of common sense. 25 comes after 20. But does anyone know what, what, what we find in Exodus chapter 20? The Ten Commandments. Okay? Moses is up on the mountaintop with the Lord, and the Lord speaks the Ten Commandments to his people. But before Moses is done with his mountaintop experience, the Lord says, wait, wait, there's something else I need to show you. And he shows them something fascinating. Exodus chapter 25 now, starting with verse 8. The Lord gives him another command. It says, and let them make me a what? Sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, this is a very loaded sentence. God tells Moses, let them, the children of Israel, who are now gathered together to be my people, let them build me a sanctuary. Now, a sanctuary is something that has been sanctified, been set apart for a holy use. Only God can make something holy. And he says, let them make me a sanctuary, a dwelling place. And why does he want this? This is beautiful. It's fascinating. Why does the Lord want a sanctuary? He says, that I may do what? Dwell where? Wasn't God already living somewhere? Sure, he says, but make me a home where you live. I want to dwell among you. I want to be God with you. So let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. But what he doesn't tell Moses is, now you build it however you like. Go crazy. Use all the colors you want. Make it multi-storied if you can pull it off somehow. Make it big, make it small, make it deep. Do whatever you want. You just get creative and bring me what you think I would like. No. He gives them very clear instruction. Look at the verse 9 now. According to all that I what? Show you. 
that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Just so you shall make it. Now, if we had time, I would love to go through the physical structure of this sanctuary that God instructed Moses to have the children of Israel build for him to dwell among them. Now, they all dwelled in tents as well, but God said, this is my tent. This is my house. I want you to build me a place among you, and I want you to build it exactly like I tell you. In fact, not just like I tell you, like I show you. Now, does it make sense that if you're going to build a house that you would have a plan? Sure. We do the very same thing. When you go to build a house, you don't, t- you don't say, well, you know, you, you just build me what you think I'd like. You tell them I want this many rooms. I want it to be this size. I want it to be this color. I need it to cost just this much. Don't go over, you know. And you have a very specific blueprint in mind. Apparently, God had a blueprint, a plan, a structure in mind, a pattern, as he called it, that his dwelling on earth was supposed to be patterned after. And he tells Moses, make it exactly like this. In fact, all the furnishings. And when it was all said and done, basically the rest of the book of Exodus, by the way, centers around the building of this sanctuary and all the furnishings. We could take another hour, which we won't do, But we could go through each of the steps. But when it was all said and done, what God's tent looked like was it had a big open area called a courtyard that in it was an altar where you sacrificed animals. Then you had inside of a veil, you had what was called the holy place where there were three pieces of furniture, the table of showbread, the seven-branch candlestick, and the altar of incense. And up against the altar of incense was another curtain led into the last room, the innermost room, the most holy place. And it had one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant is where they kept the Ten Commandment law of God. And when Moses, if you want to read it, I I would urge you, read the last chapter of the book of Exodus. They build all the pieces of furniture exactly like God said. They put together the altar. They, they, They carve out all the pieces of furniture exactly as God. Overlay it with gold and get everything set up. Then they make all the curtains, and they make all the curtain rods, and they make all the pieces and parts all scattered out on the desert floor, and then they assemble it from the inside out. They put the the tent up for the most holy place and set in the Ark of the Covenant. And they close the curtain to the most holy place. Then they set up the table of showbread and the altar of incense and and the seven-branch candlestick, and then they close the next curtain. That's the holy place. And then they go to the outer court and they set up this basin called a laver, and they set up this altar of sacrifice. And then they step out, and God's house is done. And what's fascinating is when the Lord moves in, He takes possession of a house. Now, it's one thing to own a house on paper, but it's another thing to take all your stuff and move in in person. When the Lord moved in, he brought with him all of his glory, and apparently it was so intense, so radiant, so glorious, so shiny, so bold and bright that it pushed all the people back farther and farther and farther, and God took possession of his own dwelling place. And he was going to dwell 
among his people. God said, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, go to the book of Acts. My question is, where did he come up with this pattern? How did God know? Of course, how did God know? God knows everything, but was there a pattern that Moses was shown? Well, apparently so, and where was that pattern? Acts chapter 7, starting with verse 44. That's going to be page uh, 1059 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 7, starting with verse 44. When Peter was giving his speech to the Sanhedrin, his last message before his death, he reviews the history of Israel. And he says, starting in verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. That's the sanctuary he's talking about. As he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according what? To the pattern that he had seen. So apparently there was a pattern, and Moses was shown it. We've seen it in the book of Exodus. Now we see it in the book of Acts. It goes on to say, which our fathers in turn, having received, uh, our fathers having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor for God and asked to find a dwelling for him for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. So basically when he's reviewing the history, he says, Moses was shown the pattern, the people built it, they carried it, it was a portable structure, it was a tent, They carried it all around the wilderness until they went into the promised land. And in the days of Solomon, that tent became what we know known as Solomon's temple. But it still had the courtyard, the holy place, the most holy place, the same pieces of furniture, the same pattern that God had instituted up on the mountaintop with Moses. But now look what he says, talking about this sanctuary or this temple from Israel's past. He says in verse 48, However... As impressive as that might be, that was a great tent, and Solomon's temple was fantastic. But, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made, how? With hands. As the prophet says, what is my throne? Verse 49, heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Notice he says, yes, the Lord instructed to Moses to build a tabernacle, a tent, a dwelling place. And yes, they built it according to the pattern. And yes, they set it up as a temple, great and beautiful and glorious as it was. But God's real dwelling place is not in a tent or in a building. God's original dwelling place is where? In heaven. He says, earth is just my footstool. Heaven is my actual house. Go to the book of Hebrews. Go to the right in the New Testament again. Let's see if this is repeated. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We'll start with verse 1. This is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his work as our priest in the heavenly sanctuary, which there is such a thing. In fact, he says it's the main point of why he's writing this letter. Look at verse, chapter 8, verse 1 in the book of Hebrews. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. 
So whatever comes next is the main point, yes? Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in where? The heavens. A minister of the what? Of the sanctuary and of the what tabernacle? Now, does that mean that the one on earth was a false tabernacle? Of course not. It just isn't the original, right? The original is where? In heaven. The copy, the shadow is on earth. Heaven is my throne, but earth is simply my footstool, right? Notice again, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. We're not talking about something that man made, even though God did direct him to make it. He said, make it according to what? The pattern. There was already a sanctuary. It wasn't on earth, friends. It was in heaven. And God says, I want you to make my house on earth just like the one I have in heaven. And he goes on to explain in verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. That means Christ as a priest needs to offer something. You don't ever come into the presence of God empty-handed. You bring an offering, a sacrifice with you. But did Jesus go into heaven with the blood of bulls and lambs and goats and sheep? No, he goes into heaven with what blood? His own blood. He was the sacrifice and he's the priest, yes? Therefore, it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. Notice what it says. For if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest. Now think about this. If Jesus was not the divine son of God, he was just another Jewish boy born at that time, would God have him set apart to be a priest? And apparently the answer is no. Why not? Because we have plenty of priests. We don't need a priest. We need the real thing in heaven, right? For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to law. But notice where they serve, verse 5. Who serve the what? Copy and shadow of what? Heavenly things. So apparently these furnishings and the tabernacle, the courtyard, holy place, most holy place, the whole structure is just a copy of, of the real thing, which is where? In heaven. Again, verse 5, who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, friends, let's put it together. What was Moses shown on the mountain? the heavenly sanctuary. He says, I'm going to show you the original and I want you to make the copy in shadow just like that pattern. Does that make sense? Moses says, i got to make it after the pattern. Stephen said before the Sanhedrin, he had to make it like the pattern because heaven is his throne, earth simply the footstool. Then you get to Hebrews and he says, the main point of what we're saying is this. We have a high priest, and he's not here on earth, but he's up in heaven serving at the original, the one that God built and not man. So when Moses was told to build a sanctuary and he was shown the pattern, he was shown the great heavenly original, the sanctuary which is in heaven. Now, 
Let's look at the sacrifices that would go on there, the services of the sanctuary. And you might be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with Daniel chapter 7 and a judgment before Jesus comes? How does this relate? It's a good question. Just hang on to it. We're coming. We're getting there. But as we go back to the book of Leviticus, page 93 in your pew Bibles, Leviticus chapter 1, the very first chapter of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1, not only were they supposed to have furnishings, but they were supposed to offer sacrifices the way the Lord instructed. Much like Cain and Abel were supposed to offer sacrifices the way the Lord instructed, now the children of Israel were supposed to offer sacrifices the way the Lord instructed. And basically, when you boil it down, there were two main services that took place in the earthly sanctuary. And keep in mind, all of these things are simply a copy and shadow of the real thing in heaven. They're supposed to teach us in symbol form some truth in heaven. So there's two basic services that occurred in the earthly sanctuary system. The first one happened every single day. Creatively enough, it's called the daily sacrifice. Every day, this would happen. Leviticus chapter 1, starting with verse 2. The Lord instructs, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd and of the flock. Sounds much like what we saw in Genesis chapter 4. You're supposed to bring of the flock. Now, for the corporate body, he says the same thing. He goes on to explain. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without what? Blemish. Again, all of these things are prefiguring whom? Christ. He shall offer it of his own, what? Free will. By the way, you can kneel down, you can come to worship, but God wants it to actually come from the heart, yes? It's interesting, if you were to go back to Exodus chapter 25, you don't have to do it right now, but keep this in mind. All the materials for the sanctuary, God said, I want, here's my material list, here's what I need, but I want you to get just from the people who want to give. I'm going to build my house out of personal sacrifice because they want to. And the same thing with the services. If you're going to go through this, you want it to actually mean something of your own free will. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting before the Lord. Then what is he supposed to do? It goes through actually the details. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Okay, so you're supposed to apparently put yourself in um, the sinner's place. Okay, Here comes someone who has sinned, and he says, I need to go make things right to the Lord. I'm going to go to the sanctuary. But I go with an offering. And I go with a, a, a ram, a, a lamb from the herd, from the flock, from one that you raised out in the camp. They don't provide it for you. You don't just pay money and get it. No, no, you have to bring your own. And you bring it, but you don't just drop it off at the door and be like, uh, here's my lamb, thanks. Bye-bye. No, 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 no. What do you do first? You lay your hands 
on the head of the sacrificial animal so that he will take the place of you. So you have your guilt, your sin is transferred to this sacrificial animal. Okay? Much like what we saw in the Garden of Eden. Adam should have died, but a lamb took his place. Same thing now. You should, the wages of sin is what? Death. But he said, I need this guilt off of me onto my substitute. And you lay your hands and transfer your record of guilt onto this sinless sacrifice. Now what happens? Notice it says in verse 5, He shall kill the bull before the Lord. It doesn't say the priest will do it. Apparently the sinner himself is supposed to kill the animal. So notice the sinner is supposed to bring the animal from his own house, transfer his guilt upon the head of the animal, and then he takes the knife and executes judgment. It's supposed to teach them about the significance and the import of Christ's sacrifice. But now watch what happens. Again, verse 5, He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the what? The blood, and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So, Get this in mind, by the way. There were the three compartments to the heavenly sanctuary, the courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. If you had a a sin that you wanted forgiven, you would bring your lamb and you would go into the courtyard where the altar was. And that's where you would lay your hands on it and that's where it would be slain and the blood would drain out at that point. But you don't continue in the process. You don't take the blood then and then go into the holy place. You don't go in there. Only priests go into the holy place. The sinner has transferred. He leaves forgiven. But at this point, the priest takes over and takes this collected blood and transfers it into the holy place. And he sprinkles it on that altar that's right before the curtain to the most holy place, the altar of incense. He sprinkles the blood on there. Now, it might seem like a bit of an odd system, but you need to understand it. Go to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Why the blood? Why was this so important? Blood has a very important role to play in this sacrificial system. Because the Lord ordained it for just such this purpose. Leviticus chapter 17, in verse 11. He says, the life of the flesh is where? In the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. He says, in my plan, this blood represents the very life of that animal. And that blood is in the place of you. So the record of your sin, your guilt, is transferred to this animal. And he sheds his blood where your blood should have been shed. But now it goes before the Lord and is sprinkled on this altar. That happened every single day 
Let's go to our little fill in the blank here. I want to make sure we get this clear. By confession, that is the laying on of hands, the sinner's guilt was transferred. Okay? I want to make sure we get this. By confession, you lay your hand upon the head of the animal, you confess over it whatever sin has been plaguing you, and your guilt is now transferred off of you so that you don't die, but in your place the lamb does. Now again, has the lamb committed any sin? Of course not. But it dies in your place. And your guilt is transferred to this lamb. Now notice this very carefully. This is where we take another step deeper into the pool. A sinner left forgiven. Okay? And something has died in his place. He transferred his guilt. He leaves singing, praise the Lord, I'm a free man. He's forgiven. But his sin was not destroyed. It remained where? Think about it. Where is his guilt? He leaves and goes home to his tent, but where is his guilt and stains? In God's tent, in the sanctuary. So he leaves clean, but the price of his cleanness means that something else got dirty. Right? The price of his life means that something else died. The price of his purity means something else was defiled. Something was dirtied, made impure. Thus the need for the second service, or what is known as the yearly service. Think about this. Every day, there would be a service where people who wanted to confess their sins on the head of this lamp could come in and they could give sin over to it, the record of guilt, and every day the priest would take the blood from the courtyard to the holy place and sprinkle it on the altar. And every day, 360 days a year, over and over and over again, the priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar. Everybody's leaving clean, pure records, forgiven, but what's getting dirty? The altar. Defiling the holy place, God's dwelling place. There's blood, where? In God's tent. So there needs to be a second service to clean the sanctuary itself. There needs to be a second service to clean the sanctuary itself. This is called the Day of Atonement. How many have ever heard that term before, the Day of Atonement? This is where this comes from. It's that one day a year where not just the people are cleaned, but the tent where God dwells, His sanctuary, His temple, His tabernacle, is clean from the accumulated record of wrongs therein stored. It's cleaned out on the Day of Atonement. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 16 now. The Lord tells what to do for the priests. Now, think about this. In the courtyard, sinners could come if they had a sacrifice and they went through the motion, they could leave forgiven. In the holy place, only priests could go. And still, even then, they didn't just hang out there. They only went once a day for their purpose and went back out, right? But who goes into the most holy place? 
Not even a regular priest, only the high priest. And how often? Once a year. One day a year, a human being went inside the most holy place. And it was only one human being, the high priest, and it was on this particular day, the Day of Atonement. They went actually into the very presence of the Lord. It's a very special day. Leviticus chapter 16 tells about the service that went on that day. Now, on this day, we we can't read through it all, but on this day, there would be a daily sacrifice that had been every other day. So if you had sins to confess that day, you can still go to the daily sacrifice and it would be taken care of in the cleansing of that day. But there was a second service on that day that involved more than just a lamb or a ram or a bull or a goat. It it involved two goats. Now you're still thinking, what does this have to do with judgment? We're knocking on the door right now. Okay? No. Notice in starting with verse 6, Leviticus chapter 17. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and his house. So he goes through a regular daily sacrifice. Because he's got to be clean in order to go through the process, right? So he does that. Now it says, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he's already done the purifying for himself that day, and now he moves into that second phase, the day of atonement sacrifice. And he brings how many goats? Two goats. And he brings them before the Lord. Verse 8, then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the what? Scapegoat. Okay? So obviously the one goat is not actually the Lord, right? And the other one's not actually, but it's representing, one will be representing the Lord and the other one will be representing someone else. The scapegoat, they call it. One is the Lord's goat, the other is the scapegoat. And they cast lots for him, so not not one was without blemish. They're they're both without blemish, they're both the same. They, They could have gone either way, but once it is assigned, this one is the Lord's goat, this one is the scapegoat, things change. Now watch what happens. Verse 9, And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, and what happens to it? Offer it as a sin offering. And how do you do sin offerings? You lay your hands on it, and you slay it, and you take the blood into, this time, not just the holy place. You'd go actually into the most holy place. But, look at verse 10. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented in what condition? Alive. Before the Lord to make atonement upon it, and what's going to happen to it? And to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, wait a minute. Are you telling me that after Aaron goes to the daily sacrifice again, then he brings these two goats? He casts lots. One becomes the Lord's goat, the other becomes the scapegoat. And the one which is the Lord's goat goes right back through the same process and dies, sheds its blood, but the scapegoat just gets taken out and wanders off in the wilderness? 
What on earth does this possibly mean? And what does it have to do with judgment? Well, let's keep studying it out. Let's go down to verse 16. So he shall make atonement for the holy place. For what? Why does the holy place need atonement? Any sins that it committed? Of course not. But it has been the receptacle for all the sins the congregation has committed, yes? So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So he needs to actually make atonement. So the sins that are placed upon this Lord's goat are not just the sins of this one individual or the daily, but apparently it's all the accumulated sins of the whole year are placed upon this one goat. And in the one sacrifice, it takes them away. Skip down to verse 20. And this is important, folks. I can't emphasize verse 20 enough. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, tabernacle meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Notice the live goat doesn't get involved in the process till the, till the atonement is made by the Lord's goat. Please get this. The atonement is only made by the Lord's goat. The scapegoat is involved, but not in making atonement. Let me explain, or let the scriptures explain, okay? Again in verse 20, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So that record of accumulated sins is now off of the sanctuary, has been atoned for by the Lord's goat, now gets placed on the scapegoat. Let me ask you a question. Does the scapegoat shed its blood? No. It's the only one who doesn't bleed. It doesn't die as a sacrificial animal. It just dies on its own out in the wilderness. Because, by the way, a goat raised in captivity is not going to do well in the wilderness either. But it doesn't die in the place of anyone. It just dies with that record of wrong back on its own shoulders. That's it. Now, we're going to dive into that a little bit more a few nights from now that scapegoat process and why that's important. But while the high priest was doing this work in the most holy place, outside, look at verses 30 and 31. What were the people doing outside? Chapter 16, verse 30 and 31. Well, we'll start with verse 29. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall do what? Afflict your souls and do no work at all. 
whether a native of your own country or a stranger dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to do what? To cleanse you. That you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It's a statute forever. So why the high priest is going through this process with the goats in the holy and most holy place, the people out in the camp weren't supposed to be just having a regular old day. Oh yeah, the priest is doing some. No, no, no. They were to be afflicting their souls. Lord, is there anything else left between me and you? Is there anything that I should be confessing and putting in? Because this is the last day. Is there anything between me and you that I need to confess, to repent, to put onto the head of that goat, to put into the sanctuary so that when it's cleansed out, my record is clean too? Now, why would this be? I'm going to close with an illustration. Because you notice, and this might cause a little frustration here, but let me explain. Every day, sinners came in and got forgiveness. And they were personally free from what they had done, but the sin itself, the record of the sin, was retained until the Day of Atonement. Why? Why go through the two-step process? Well, because, folks, there are two parties involved with every sin. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, a, a young girl was going into college. She was very excited about it. She wanted to be a, um, at least she wanted to be a doctor. Had to take some very hard classes. But she's like, I'm up for the challenge. I'm ready to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to be on time to class. I'm going to study really hard. I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to get the grade. Well, it didn't take her long. She signed up for every hard class you could think of. <laughs> and this one particular class was just killing her. It didn't take her very long to realize that that A average quickly went to a B, to a C, to a D. She was on a downhill. So, and you know what happens in college? When you don't make the grade, they don't give you your money back. It's crazy. They keep the money. <laughs> and she realized, I'm in trouble. I can't just drop this class now. I'm going to get an F. But I can't continue on because I'm going to get an F. And I've got money. And what am I going to do? She goes to her professor. She says, teacher, professor, sir. Man, I am so, I'm over my head. I'm, a, I'm drowning in this water. I'm just, I'm dying here. Is there anything you can do to help me out? And the professor, seeing this beautiful young girl in such a vulnerable position, decides on a path that was not noble. And he proffers a deal and he makes an immoral suggestion to her. I'll give you the grades if in exchange you give me you. Oh, man. What is she going to do? She hates the very idea of it. She can't believe she even had the conversation, but she looks at the grades, she looks at the money, she looks at her situation, and she says, you know, I guess i got to do what i got to do. And she goes back to the professor and she seals the deal. And slowly but surely, her grades started to come back up. But she knew she wasn't earning it the right way. 
So as her grades got better, her morale kept decreasing, and this weight of guilt just kept pressing her down. I can't be this person. I won't be this person, she said. And she goes, and she makes a visit to the academic dean's office, and she says, I have a pretty large breach of academic integrity I need to tell you about. I want to show you my grades in this class, and I'm going to let you know I haven't earned them appropriately. And she tells her story to the academic dean. Now, this is not just cheating off of someone's quiz or stealing the notes before... This is egregious academic dishonesty, right? But she says, I can't live with myself. Do what you need to do. I want to confess. I want to make it right. I don't ever want to do it again. I have to get this off my back. So they call an academic council meeting. What are we going to do about this situation? This is huge. And they decide. They call her back in, and they said, listen, we're not going to kick you out of school. We could and we should, but we're going to be good. Here's what you're going to have to do. For the rest of the year, you're on academic probation. You don't cheat. You don't do anything illegal, anything immoral. You stay above board, and you earn your grades, even if they're Fs, the right way. But we're going to give you another chance. But we're watching. Now, she leaves saying, praise the Lord. I'm going to go back and I'm going to earn that D minus if I have to, right? But it's going to be mine. I'm going to do it the right way. She has her record cleared. (sighs) Let me ask you something. Is the situation resolved? Why not? Because the second party, if only she is dealt with, is the problem taken care of? No. Now imagine six months go by, she's living up to her end, and she's managed to pull C's, and she's doing okay, but she's doing it with pride instead of an A- minus with guilt. You know, she's got a C plus with pride. And then she gets a call from the academic dean. And he says, the council is meeting again, and we need you to stop by. And she's like, what? I haven't done anything wrong. I've been good. <laughs> I've been, I, I haven't just been living on your pardon. I've actually been living, I, I've been living right. We just need you to stop by anyway. She's like, oh man, it's the day of judgment. But she walks into the lobby and she notices that there are a few other young ladies there too. All shaking in their shoes just like her. And it dawns on them that they're not here to answer for their part of their crime. They're there to be witnesses against his crime that they shared in. Does that make sense? So that their record of sin, if it had been completely deleted from the system, completely blotted out, there would be nothing to charge the professor with. But by retaining their accumulated guilt, they could put that professor away for good. So their record of guilt, although at one time they were under it, now serves as the record that will condemn the original instigator of the problem. Let's apply this back to what we've learned tonight. When Jesus Christ took our sins, praise God, 
But just a transaction between me and my Savior is not enough because there's an enemy who has done this. Do you recall that? And someday he needs to answer for all the sins that he has caused. And he's not doing it through the blood of Jesus Christ. But he's going to retain it on his own. And not in the place of anyone else, but just for his own responsibility, he will have to face the record of sins that he has caused. And then he'll be released in the wilderness to die on his own. Now, we have a meeting coming up in several meetings, but it's coming, entitled The Day the Devil Dies. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to the day when sin and suffering and disease and war and famine, all the things that he have caused are gone. And I'm looking forward to him being gone personally. But apparently there's a reason in God's great plan why it needs to unfold this way. Now, in the Day of Atonement, that was also called the Day of Judgment. When God reviews the record of those people who have claimed his pardon and see if they're now living under his power, if they're still holding up to it, and if so, the, the, the record of guilt is put on to the original instigator, Satan himself. Tomorrow night, you don't want to miss it, we're going to be expanding on this concept of the day of judgment. What we've looked at tonight is simply the copy and shadow, the earthly system, but we're going to see how this particular system applies to Jesus Christ and the end-time events that are going on, I believe, even now. So you don't want to miss it. Come back tomorrow night. Be here at 6.55, some between 6.55 and 6.57, somewhere around in there. So try for 6.56. But we want you to be on time. We're going to get going, and we're going to continue understanding what God is doing even now preparatory for his soon return. But if you have any questions, please leave in the box in the back. Thank you for your patience. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who not only deals with forgiveness, Lord, you're going to end the sin problem altogether. Lord, we look forward to the day when Satan and sin will be no more. But Lord, help us to even now be afflicting our souls. Is there anything between us and you. Is there anything that would keep us away? Anything we need to confess? Lord, as we go home tonight, help us to have that conversation we need to have with you in the closet, in the privacy of our own dwelling. But Lord, help us to open our hearts and let you in fully so there's nothing between and we can stand strong in the day of judgment with confidence in our Savior. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.